want to welcome you today as we continue our study in the book of Nehemiah. For those of you that are guests, we have been, um, oh goodness, since January studying the book, this Old Testament book that has so much to say to us about perseverance, about leadership, and so many other stellar, wonderful qualities that we try to emulate. And so the title of the message today, and appropriately so, is we're honoring the Ochesters, people who have literally personified the message that I'm preaching today about keeping commitments, whether it's a commitment to your marriage, a commitment to your church, a commitment to your ministry, a commitment to your family, your, your job, or whatever that commitment may be, once, once you make a commitment, uh, and that's easy, by the way, right? It's easy to say, I do, uh, but it's harder to do the thing that you said you would do, to, and that is to be faithful and to be honest and to persevere. So today, as God would work it out, I'm just not smart enough to plan Nehemiah 10 on this day in August, but God is so good. And we're going to read the text in a moment, but before we do, I, I really owe it to our guests to kind of bring you up to speed as to where we've been in the previous nine uh, chapters. Uh, Nehemiah is he's the governor of Jerusalem. He worked for King Artaxerxes, a man uh, who was the king of the Medes and the Persians, which meant in the 5th century B.C., he was the king of the known world, really. And one of his vassals or one of his slaves was a man by the name of Nehemiah. But Nehemiah was elevated to the place of a cupbearer, which means he tasted the wine, he tasted the food before it went to the king. And if there was poison in the wine or poison in the food, then Nehemiah would die but long live the king. But that was his job. And because of that job, uh, he, he gained the favor and, and really was intimate with the king and his royal court. And so one great day, Cyrus gave that decree in 538. Then you come about 100 years now, it's King Artaxerxes. He's the king of the Medes and the Persians. And he says, Nehemiah, go back and take your people with you and go and rebuild this wall that you so desperately want to rebuild. And so that's what we've been studying. And in 52 days, he did it. Nehemiah 6.15 says, in 52 remarkable days, they rebuilt the perimeter wall, the wall of protection, the wall of defense, but more than that, the wall of statement. The statement that God is still God. God is in control. He has not forsaken his people. Yes, we have fallen on hard times, but God is still good. God is still sovereign. God is still providential. God is in control. And so we celebrate this wall. And they did. In Nehemiah 8, in Nehemiah 9, there's a great revival. And it's, it's called the revival at the water gate. And for two chapters, we read about the people celebrating worshiping God with fasting and singing and then going out and giving gifts to one another. And it is really the apex moment of Nehemiah's life. But we just can't forget what happened in order for that to happen. Remember all the opposition? Remember the persecution? There was a time in Nehemiah chapter 4 where Nehemiah, he told the guys, he said, now with one hand, I want you to work and with the other hand, I want you to have your spear and your sword ready to defend, uh, defend us and defend our honor. And so um, there it is. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other they held a weapon. Now that's Nehemiah chapter 4. And by the way, you don't ever get to 8 and 9 before you get to 4. And in 4, they, I mean, it is dark. It is ominous. And the, and, and the people are like, are we really going to make it? Are we really going to come through this alive, Nehemiah? I mean, people on the outside are trying to take our lives. There's dissension within the ranks ourselves. And Nehemiah, like, like, a, like a Winston Churchill, 
He had this dogged determination, this bulldog kind of mentality that, hey, we will make it. One of my favorite Churchillian stories is France had just fallen. And, every, and, and the world was looking at, at England, their island nation, and they were in the crosshairs of Germany. I mean, Hitler has just been sweeping across these smaller countries, and, but really the prize would be England, and then after that would be America. And so as they make their way uh, right in the crosshairs of, of England, Winston Churchill calls his cabinet together. And uh, his men are gathered around a table, and I'm telling you guys, this is an ominous moment. And the generals and the cabinet members are looking at Churchill, and they have resignation in their eyes, meaning we are ready to capitulate. We, we really do not stand a chance. Look at France. Look at Poland. Look, look at all the other nations. I mean, they have fallen to this Nazi regime, and this fascism, it looks like it's just going to overtake the world. And, and, and Churchill, what, what do you think? And there was silence in the room. I mean, it was one of those awkward silences. It probably lasted for about 30 seconds, but it felt like for about 30 hours. And he reached over. Y'all know what that is, Baptist. We don't know. Let me tell you what that is. That, that would be a cigar, all right? And he lit that cigar. He took a puff of it. He had this little twinkle in his eyes. He said, gentlemen, I have to say, these are exciting times. <laughs> and they all just took a deep breath and said, we're not giving up. We're going to continue. In another sense, um, another setting, he, um, he told them this. He said, it sounds like something Theodore Roosevelt would have said when he said, gentlemen, there's nothing quite like being shot at but not being hit. Isn't that, fa isn't that fun? Isn't that fascinating? In other words, he has this Nehemiah kind of quality of leadership that, yes, everything's falling apart around us, but God is for us. God is with us. So get back on the wall. Let's build the wall. Get back to your stations and let's defend our honor and our families and our countries. And it is amazing what can happen if a lion is leading with boldness and very courageous. And, and that's what we've seen in Nehemiah. So now they're celebrating but now they've come to the point where they need to make commitments. And the title of our message is just basically making your commitments, keeping your commitments. And, and, and what happens in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, it says, here we are, the leaders, the, the Levites, the priests, the governors, we're all here, and we seal this document saying that we know God, we love God, and even though our forefathers have abandoned God, we make a covenant. We make a commitment that we will obey the Lord our God from this day forward. And Nehemiah chapter 10, if you'll look at it, right up there at the very beginning, verses 1 and 2, the first person who signed the document was Nehemiah. Do you see that? If you have your Bibles, you'll see it in Nehemiah chapter 10. You'll see a list of verses 1 through 27. There's a list of all these priestly homes and, and all these leaders of Israel. But the very first person to sign his name is Nehemiah. The second person's name is Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, many people believe, was Nehemiah's secretary. So here he is. He's signing the document. He is saying, we have seen God bless us. We have seen God preserve us. And we're making a commitment to God today. From this day forward, we're going to honor God in our relationship with Him. We're going to honor God in our homes. We're going to honor God in our businesses. And we're going to honor God in our worship. So those are your four points 
of the message today. If you have your outline there with you, if you want to take some notes, we're going to, we're going to look at making commitments implies, or keeping commitments implies making commitments, all right? And then secondly, when we make those commitments and keep them, God blesses us. So let me pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 10, and we'll look. It'll take me just a minute to read the text. It's a, it's a lengthy text, but as I just gave you that outline, think about that outline as you read this text today. They're making a commitment in their relationship to God, in their homes, in their businesses, and, and ultimately in their worship at the temple. All right, you ready? So you're caught up. So let's, let's read the text. Let me read it to you. Now the rest of the people, verse 28, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethinim. Now Nethinim was just is a word that means temple servants, okay? The temple servants. And all of those who had separated themselves from the peoples, the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, they joined with their brethren. Do you see it in your mind's eye? I mean, this collective, corporate, this coming together of the nation of Israel with our leaders and with our people, with our princes and with our pastors and priests, if you will, and everybody in between. We have joined with our brethren, the nobles. <clears throat> We've entered into a curse. I thought that was really interesting. You know, I, I've seen people make commitments, but I've never seen anybody say, I make such a commitment that, God, would you curse me? Would you kill me if I renege on my commitment? We'd have a whole lot less divorce today, by the way, if we made commitments like that. We'd have a lot less people abandoning their church homes if we made commitments like this. God, I stand before you. Just curse me, God. Strike me dead if I renege on this commitment before you. Serious stuff, isn't it? curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments. Now, this is the relationship with God, right? The commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. Point number two, we want to keep commitments, make commitments in our relationship with our homes, with our families, with our daughters, with our sons. We will not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land. And we will not take their daughters for our sons. Okay? That's a big commitment. We're going to talk about this in just a moment. And this is not racism. This is a commitment that we're going to honor God. And we're not going to bring in the gods and the goddesses of the land. And we're not going to let our children marry people who worship Baal. We're just not going to do it. Because when we do that, we contaminate our home. We're going to contaminate our country. And so if you worship Baal, you worship Baal over there. But we're going to stand for God here in our home. That's exactly what they're doing. And they're serious about it. Because they have seen what had happened. They had seen the Assyrians just almost annihilate them. They had seen the Babylonians just come in and destroy them. Why? Because they began to worship these false gods. And so they're making a commitment today saying, we're not going to do that. We've learned from our mistakes. And we're going to honor God in our, in our relationship with Him and in our very homes. And also in our businesses. We're going to honor God. And it says, and the people of the land, if the peoples of the land, they bring or brought their wares or their produce, if you will, or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day. Well, we're not going to buy it. <laughs> we're not going to buy it from them on the Sabbath. 
or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. And those of you that know your Old Testament, you, you're remembering the law. You're remembering the year of Jubilee. You know, you, you work those six years, then you leave the land for seven years. And anybody has a debt against you, you relieve that debt or you set your, uh, your slave free. And so they, they've gone through and they've read over again the book of the law of God and Moses. And, they, and they're like, we're going to, man, we're, we're going to do this. Because we have found out that the price to pay for disobeying God is much greater than the price we pay for obeying God. Did you ever notice that? The price we pay for our disobedience is so much more costly than the price we would pay of our commitment and surrender to Christ. So we make ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Now we're coming to the worship, okay? They're, boy, they're very serious about this temple thing, guys. They are going to go exactly by the book and do what God told them to do. So let me read this. Please quit interrupting me. And I'm going to, I'm going to read it. <clears throat> you know, I'm kidding. I interrupt myself. For the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God, we sign the covenant, we make the commitment, we're going to do all those things that Moses told us to do. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as, as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits, here comes your tithes, of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit trees, year by year, to the house, I underscore that, to the temple, to the place of worship. It's sacred, it's important. It was destroyed, we have rebuilt it. We have rebuilt the wall that goes around it. And we don't want to do those things that caused it to fall in the first place. So let's recommit as families and as the congregation of Israel, as the people of God, let us all make these fresh commitments unto God. And here what we'll do, we'll just bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle because it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God. To bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine, the oil, to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God. I mean, how many times are we going to read the house of our God? You think it's important? You think temple worship, do you think them coming together had significance and had meaning? Absolutely. It's just palpable. I mean, it just burst off the page of Holy Scripture that the house of God is important to God and it has to be important to the people of God. And so to bring the tithes. Bring the tithes of all the land to the Levites. For the Levites should receive the tithes in all of our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. Now watch this. You tithed your tenth of your produce and your cattle and your first fruits and all those things. And you brought a tithe to the Levites. And the Levites would take that, and that's how they lived. That's how they paid their bills. That's how they lived, because they were ministers of God. I mean, really, that's the dynamic equivalent is today, you bring your tithes. That's how Ashley and I eat. That's how we live, and that's how we turn on the electricity and the air conditioner, because you bring your tithes. But watch this. 
the Levites were expected to tithe from the tithe. And so the Levites would go and they would give their tithe. Here it is, to bring up a tenth of the tithe to the house of our God. The Levites did that to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. And we, I tell you, one of the most powerful verses, really such a, such a verse that encapsulates so much of Old Testament history and theology. When the people of God are walking with God and they're not neglecting the house of God. I mean, here it says, it says, we will not neglect the house of our God. So that's our text today. And as you walk through the text with me, I'm, I'm going to go uh, quickly. I have these four points, but the first point uh, is keeping commitments implies that we have made commitments, Okay. And we're just going to take a page out of Holy Scripture and, and extrapolate from the life of Israel and how that applies to, to us today. First of all, their relationship to God. In verse 28 it says, We separate ourselves from the peoples of the land. And I like the way one writer puts this. He, he describes it. He says, The phrase, all who separated themselves, indicates that this was a definite community with definite limits. Separation from the neighboring peoples was important to maintain the distinctive beliefs and ethical principles of the community of God. Because if they did not, they would run the risk of two really egregious corporate eras. The first one would be isolationism. If they disobeyed God, they, and they could, they could get to the point where they are so isolated that they have no community communication or no influence with those who are around them. And so they don't want to commit the sin of isolation, but they also don't want to commit the sin of syncretism. And syncretism is, hey, whatever feels good, do it. Y'all want to come over here and worship with us? Just bring your gods with you. Bring your sons and your daughters with you. And it's like, no, we've got to find that balance. We've got to find that balance as the community of faith, the people of God, the people of Israel where we don't isolate ourselves to the point where we have no influence in the world, but where we don't want to just be so syncretistic and amalgamate and bring everybody in so that we are compromised. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's the church. That's individual followers of Christ. How can we be strong in our faith without having these little holy huddles and not letting anybody in. But how can we be strong in our faith when we let people in, we share Christ with them, and we lead them to maturity in Christ so that we don't compromise? This is powerful. This commitment number one is making this commitment to God. And you see it, and it's not, like I said earlier, it's not some kind of racism. It's just we want to honor God. We want to we worship Him and keep this doctrine pure. I love verse 29. They said, we're going to observe it, and we are going to do it as a nation. Now, <clears throat> I know that this book was not written to us. I get that. I'm, I'm not a Jew. I'm not of the Israeli community. I know that the Old Testament was written to, initially, the Jewish people. But can I say this? Even though it was not written to me, it's written for us. There's a big difference in those two prepositions. 
And so what are the dynamic equivalents that we can draw out of Nehemiah chapter 10 where leaders and priests and people and pastors are saying the God that birthed our nation is a worthy God and we are going to honor him and we are going to worship him and him alone. And I tell you, what nation on earth has been blessed more than these United States of America. No nation has. Why have we been so enormously, exorbitantly, magnanimously blessed? It's because our founding fathers said, in God we trust. Yeah, they did. You say, well, that's up for debate. Let me tell you what's not up for debate. You can pull out your dollar bill, your $20 bill, and it will say... In Muhammad, we trust, right? Negative. It says in God, we trust. The president of the United States, when he is inaugurated before God and heaven and the nations, put your hand on the Holy Quran. No. Put your hand on the Holy Book of God and make this commitment. And he does. Why? Why? Please somebody tell me that knows history better than me. If it's not founded on the Judeo-Christian biblical teaching, then why does Congress meet every day and have a pastor pray before they assemble? Listen, friend, the redactionists, the revisionists, they have fits over this because you can't deny the evidence. The evidence is, in God we trust. Put my hand on the Bible. Let's pray. Well, it goes back to Benjamin Franklin. A lot of it does. Well, I thought he was, uh, well, I don't know what all he was. I've read his biography. He's, he's, he's a strange bird, but anyhow, God used him. I watched a debate just last week. It was a fascinating debate between an atheist and Jay Strack. Jay Strack is the president of Student Leadership University. And Jay is debating this uh, atheist, and it's really fascinating to watch because this atheist is like, Man, we are against religion in the White House. And they were so upset because some of President Trump's cabinet meet weekly to have Bible study. And man, this atheist was fuming. He was so angry at this. And he's going, this is wrong. They're studying a Bible that enslaves women. They're they're studying a a Bible that endorses slavery. They're studying a Bible that says if you don't believe it, you're going to go to hell. Why in the world are people studying that book? They need to rip that book out of the White House. And Jay Strack says, well, sir, can I say something? (laughs) This is the rock upon which this republic rests, to use a Jeffersonian quote. Benjamin Franklin in 1787 at the Continental Congress Sir, you remember what happened that day in Pennsylvania as they're gathered together and they're so fussing and fighting like a bunch of Baptists in the room. They can't agree on anything. And Franklin finally stands up and he says, guys, look at us. We're we're pitiful. We're not going to coalesce. We're not going to sign this constitution unless we get our act together. Why don't we pray? Why don't we pray as the leaders of this nation? And Jay is recounting this to this atheist. And the, and the news reporter, he's standing there in the middle. It's just really funny watching him. He's just like doing this. And then he quotes Benjamin Franklin. And Well, he didn't, but I've done some research and I'm quoting it. I'm embellishing Jay Strack's argument. 
if a sparrow cannot fall without the divine knowing, could a nation, could an empire rise without his aid? That's Benjamin Franklin's quote. And then he says, sirs, would we come together and pray? In fact, why don't we pray every day we meet in Congress and let's get one of the local clergymen to come and lead us in a word of prayer. And they did. And the rest is history. So, I live in America, and so do you. This nation was founded upon the Judeo-Christian values and ethics. Like it or not, it's in the documents. It's in our very life. And so, I want to make this point. To the degree we honor this guy will be the degree of our blessing. And to the degree that we deny him and omit him and pass him over will be the degree that he does the same to us. So number one, they made this commitment to God. And I think there's a wonderful dynamic equivalent that we make that commitment to God. Number two, they made commitments in their homes and in their families. Now, I, I, I see it, and I read where they said, separate ourselves from the pagans... And let's marry fellow Israelites because we don't want to contaminate with other world religions. We just don't. And so, to me, the dynamic equivalent is 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Students, let me just let you in on a secret. Missionary dating does not work. Well, I'll just date you because I I see in you there's great value, and, and I'll just convert you through the dating process. No, you're not. Very, very seldom does missionary dating work. Man, find you a godly man and latch on to him. Find you a godly woman that loves Jesus and pursue her. And, and don't, don't marry a Hindu. And don't marry a Jewish person. And don't marry somebody who follows Muhammad. Have your children marry somebody that follows Jesus Christ. Man, is that politically incorrect. Man, is that going to get me on NBC and MSNBC. Woo, man. I have no desire to do that. I have a desire to preach the Word of God. And God says, don't be unequally yoked, so don't. You say, this is kind of radical. Yes! It was radical then. It's radical today that we're to be the people of God. We're to love everybody. I mean, everybody should be loved. And what's going on in Virginia is a travesty. There's a bunch of idiots in Virginia who are racist and bigots and they're idiots. And God has nothing in that. God rebukes racism. God rebukes the bigotry. But let me tell you something. Within your family, you need to marry some. You say, well, what if she's black? Praise God and marry her. Well, what if she's Hispanic? Praise the Lord. I think my youngest son's going to marry a Hispanic. What? Yeah. Yeah, I think he is. I think he is. So... If you like it, put a ring on it, brother. All right, so. I love this young lady. Her grandparents don't even speak English. Praise God. I'm not, listen, I'm not talking about racism. I'm talking about finding somebody that loves Jesus. And to that point, I'm going to be exclusive. Here's what my wife would always tell them. 
You know, Hannah be dating somebody, and Astrid would always ask him this question. And Brian, he'd be wanting to date somebody. Astrid would say, well, let me ask you something. And Leighton, she'd go, let me ask you a question. Go ahead. See? Did y'all hear that? You think we're bats with sonic hearing? What do you think? She, we can't hear her. <laughs> Ashley would always ask them four, four words. Do they love Jesus? Sometimes they'd go, well, I, just, I, don't, I don't know, you know. I, I don't know. And then they, and Ashley would say, then don't go out with them. Man, that is so myopic, provincial. That is so, I, don't, I just don't know about that. Hey, it's right. It's right. We, we, we're not going to give our daughters and our sons to those who worship other deities. We, we're going to serve God in our home. We make a fresh commitment to God, the Israelites said. We're going to worship God. We're going to honor God in our home and in our businesses. Now, what I'm doing, I'm putting points one and two together because I'm running out of time, so just stay with me. All right, here we go. I'm redacting as I'm preaching. Here we go. So how do, how do we do that? What's the dynamic equivalent of that today? We don't honor the Saturday as a Sabbath. I love what Chuck Swindoll said about this. This is, this is actually kind of funny. Let me see if I can find it. Here he said, he said, here's my comment on verse 31. When the Saturday Sabbath begins and we see those who want to do business coming over the hills toward Jerusalem, we will say no. We are not open for business. We'll talk with you tomorrow. And when the seventh year rolls around, we'll rest from sowing and reaping until the next year. And when our brother owes us a debt, we will look on it as God would have us look on it. There will be a release from the debt. Our business dealings will be on the up and up. End of quote. So the dynamic equivalent for us, I think, would be to honor God on the Lord's Day, the Resurrection Day, like you are doing here. And if there's any way possible, and I know sometimes your ox gets in a ditch, you know, and you, you need to get that ox out of the ditch. And it's kind of weird me preaching about not working on Sunday because that's, that's what I do on Sunday, right? So I'm still trying to figure this out. But best we can to honor God on the Sabbath, at least come to church and worship Him. Or for heaven's sake, let's just do like Chick-fil-A. Well, that just got them in a bunch of trouble. Well, that, that little business is just struggling, just trying to get by, aren't they? Yeah, boy. You know, just, where am I? Is this Jollyville, right on Breaker? Okay, right over here. Jeff Glover is the owner-operator of that Chick-fil-A. Now, every Sunday, Truett Cathy started it, Dan Cathy believes it, and, and preaches it, say, we are going to be closed on Sunday. And I did the research on this. It's amazing how Chick-fil-A is blowing everybody else away on six days. On six days, right? So Jeff Glover, he, he shut this one down, and they demolished it. And for six months, they rebuilt the Chick-fil-A so that you can get 18 million people through there at lunchtime. It's, have y'all ever been to this Chick-fil-A at lunchtime? Okay, two things. Number one, you go, whoa, there's a lot of people. And then five minutes later, whoa, I'm eating a chicken sandwich. And they'll ask me, they say, hey, hey, how'd that go for you? Chris, who's one of the guys that works over there, he goes, he goes Pastor, did, did we do a good job? Did we get through this okay? And I'm like... Man, you did great. Well, here's what Jeff did. He, he told his employees, he said, you know, for six months, we're not going to be getting any income because we're rebuilding it, but I'm going to pay you anyhow. He paid them all, all their employees, 
He paid their salaries. And Chris told me, he said, yep, I got that full-time salary. And I went over and worked at another Chick-fil-A, so I got double. <laughs> and he said, and I, I've been able to pay off my student loans. He said, this has just been a wonderful thing. So let me, let me just ask us a question. How's that going for him? I'd like to ask Jeff, how's that going for you, brother? <laughs> Have you been over there lately? It's unbelievable. Well, you're just saying God, you, you, I know what you're saying. You're just trying to make a point that just because they honor God, God's just pouring out blessings on them. Praise God, yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because they honor God with their business and they treat their employees and they treat their people right, then God in heaven just smiles on that and he blesses them. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. It's Proverbs. So honoring God. The Israelites did it. We can do it. In our relationship to God, in our homes, in our businesses, and finally in the house of God, in, in our worship, okay? And, boy, I got a good word for you. It's so good I got to read this, too. I don't want to mess this up. I thought I'd memorized it, but maybe I didn't. Oh, here it is. God will certainly bless us as we give priority to worship. In Nehemiah's day, God had a temple for his people. But today, because of Jesus' death and resurrection and the indwelling Holy Spirit, God has a people for his temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. These are just my notes. You can, you can get them online. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So our temple worship is starting to look like this. We, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And I found that the more the Holy Spirit has possession of me and the more he gives me his gifts and the more the fruit is manifested in me, the more I want to be with the people of God. This isolationist, lone ranger Christianity mentality that is so prominent in America has no basis in the New Testament. It's all about community. It's all about the people coming together. We, little temples, come together. And this God has blessed us with this building. Yes, thank you, Lord. But this building is not near as important as the God that occupies us. And we come together and we worship Him together. And so for 40 days, we... Again, if you're a guest, let me, let me explain this briefly. We, we are doing a 40 days of prayer and fasting. Every seventh day we are fasting from, most of us are fasting from food. And every Tuesday during these 40 days we come together and like we did this past Tuesday. And I, I honestly had no idea. I didn't know if anybody, I knew the staff would come because I made them. I, I just said, you guys got to come. I said, y'all need to, y'all got to come. And bless them, I love them. They came, and so did a bunch of other people. And we just had time of prayer. And, and some of you, so sweet. Some of you, like me, you were fasting, and I could tell. My spirit, in my spirit, I could tell you were fasting because you were, you were in pain. <laughs> you're like, well, I'm glad to be here, preacher. Oh, boy. Whew, amen. Let's go. Some of you hadn't had your coffee, or some of you hadn't had your donut, or some of you hadn't had eaten like, like I hadn't eaten. And I'm like, but here's the thing, though. I mean, 
we're just desperate for God, and we want God. We want God in our midst. We want God in our nation. We want God with unity. We want God for Cornerstone, I mean, uh, Cornerstone Community Church. And, and we're just crying out to God for these things as, as a people, and, and we're making these commitments to God. And I love it. September 17th, we'll, we'll pull up here our, our 29 plus leaders, 29 plus the Smithson family, and, and we'll ordain them, we'll commission them, we'll lay hands on them, and we'll say, God, they go in peace and bless them as they plant that church in Leander in, in, in Cedar Park. And somebody told me the other day, they said, I just want you to know something, guy. That is so radical. In the life of your church right now, in the juncture that you're in right now in your church, for y'all to do that, you're either crazy or you're on fire for God. I said it's both. <laughs> I said, we're a little crazy and we're a little on fire for God. What is, has God said anything to you about making commitments? Can we, can we pull it out of the corporate collective world and pull it down to the individual world? Has God said anything to you about making a fresh commitment to God? I, I think about the people who rededicate their lives to Christ, and I don't minimize that or mitigate that at all. I think that's very powerful. But you can't dedicate, rededicate something that you've never dedicated. And if you've never fully surrendered your life to Christ and I was talking to you, Sean, this past week. We had dinner Friday night. Sean said something to me. It's interesting. He said, I know I'm saved because my, my sins are forgiven and the Holy Spirit's in me. I thought, man, that's good. I know I'm saved because my sins have been forgiven and the Holy Spirit is in me. Can you say that? If you can't, then say it today. Say, Holy Spirit of God, come into me and through the blood of Jesus cleanse me and I Commit for the first time my life to you. You can't revive that which has not been vived, all right? So I'm vibing. Lord, I'm, I'm giving you my life. Others of us today, maybe we need to recommit. Maybe we need to make a fresh rededicate. And really, that's what I'm trying to do in these 40 days. I'm, I'm trying to lead Great Hills for all of us to make fresh, dynamic, corporate rededications to God. Thanking God for our past. Grateful to God for His provision, but looking to the future, what, what new territories do we need to take for the gospel? And I'll say it again, a unified, revived, excited Great Hills Baptist Church can literally change the world. My wife nodded her head. At least one person believes me when I say that. And I thank you, dear. I cherish you. I love you so much. Sometimes preachers, you think maybe, maybe that's, the, that's the one that believes in me and trusts me, like Barbara has for you for all those years. A revived, unified, making commitments, dedicated Great Hills Baptist Church changes, changes the world. So, Father, we close our message today with praise. We extend our invitation to all that are here today, God, to make a fresh commitment to you. May our altar be filled with people, Lord. That would say, God, I'm, I'm making a commitment today in my relationship with you, in my family, my business, in my church. Lord Israel of old did it, and as they did it and remembered you, God, you blessed them. 
The Ochesters have done it and continue to do it. And God, you have continued to bless them because obedience and faithfulness pay incredible dividends. Just like disobedience and unfaithfulness reap a different kind of harvest. So Lord, I'm praying for our people today. I'm asking for just a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us. Lord, for renewed passion to share the gospel, for a renewal and a love for our church. For these 40 days of prayer and fasting and all those things we're praying for, for our nation, for our president, for unity in our nation, for Cornerstone Community Church, for revival in Great Hills Baptist Church, and for the favor. God, your favor is what I'm praying for, to rest heavily, mightily upon us so that we can be used to the maximum for your glory and the expansion of your kingdom. So, Lord, bless, I pray. I pray that many would come to faith in Christ for the very first time, and many of us, others, would rededicate, revive us, O Lord, as your people. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you stand. Terry's going to lead us in a song. We'll have pastors and we'll have counselors. We'll have people here that will help you, that will encourage you. So you lead us, and we'll do business with God today. Amen. <clears throat>